specials. I had to go to all the lodges. I had to play all the shriners. I said hello to Hey LA, I'm coming your way. Some people sit on their butts. Got the dream, yeah, but not the guts. That's living for some people, for some hum drum people, I suppose. Well, they can stay and rot. But not rot. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's this week on Broadway for Sunday, February 5th, 2023. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Good morning. Good morning, Peter. Just two weeks away from uh, your <laughs> first show at Theater 555, where you do Pete's Theatrical Adventures, which is uh, where you are going to pull random <laughs> random cards, flashcards. Right. Is, is this right. how you uh, train young people to learn about theater with flashcards? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if young people want to learn about the flashcards I'm flashing, but nevertheless... Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's open to everybody. It's free. So, I mean, how can you go wrong? Well, maybe you can. But nevertheless, um, all you have to do is uh, contact box office at theater555.com. Theater is E-R, the American spelling. And uh, make a reservation. Uh, Four o'clock, two weeks from today. Only two weeks from today. So, anyway, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll see uh, some of you there and as many as I hope I can meet and shake hands afterwards. Great. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. <laughs> Hello. So, uh, quite a cold week here in New York. Yep. Sure is. I wonder how it's going to reflect in the grosses that we hear yeah, coming yeah, this week. Yeah. I don't know if well, we took a hit there. Well, yeah, I can't I mean, imagine too many people would want to stand in that line at TKTS. Mm, yeah, yeah, I don't so. know. I was out for dinner last night and it was packed. <laughs> oh, yeah? I mean, well, if people already have the tickets, obviously they're going to yeah. go out anyway. Uh, yeah. But maybe it, it affected walk-up business. It's funny you say that because somebody was um, talking about um, the Catherine Hepburn play A Matter of Gravity um, way back when. And when it was trying out in Boston, my tickets for a night when there was this incredible Bostonian snowstorm. I mean, it was amazing. I didn't live far from the theater, so I wasn't having that much of a problem getting there. But I thought to myself, oh, my God, poor Catherine Hepburn. This place is going to be empty because people are just not going to come and see this play tonight. Night. The place was packed. Absolutely. I didn't see one empty seat, and I really looked long and hard to see if I could find an empty seat. Not one. Everybody wanted to see Catherine Hepburn. Mm. Not one? Not one. <laughs> no, no, not one. No, no, not one. <laughs> not one. Gotcha. <laughs> yes, one. <laughs> it's Mabel. Uh, so, and we uh, there, there is a pirates kicking around, isn't there? Yes, there is. I did hear there about is. that. Yeah. So uh, um, I can't wait. I love Gilbert and Sullivan. I, I do it. too. I do too. I I, I really um, I love seeing the roots of uh, what happened and uh, where it started, and even for all the false accents on the lyrics. And we'll certainly be talking about <laughs> lyrics pretty soon. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's great fun. So uh, I was very lucky to see Doily Cart when they were um, at least operating and uh, making tours and all that. Um, but uh, it's been a while since I've seen the word doily card anywhere. <laughs> That's true. You know, um, occasionally now and then uh, I, I, I make references to certain things that are in the news for a hot minute or pop culture references, and they don't age very well. <laughs> they don't no. age very well. And so I'm about to make another one. Oh. But uh, I wonder if we'll even remember it next year if there's a, a, a Chinese weather balloon. Or if, no. <laughs> or if there's a next year. <laughs> <laughs> That's dark. That's very dark, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows where so, the road may lead us? Only a fool can say. Go on. <laughs> so the uh, 
I'm wondering if uh, Irish Rep uh, could have used that uh, the Chinese balloon, the the weather or spy balloon, whatever whatever it was, to be a smuggler. You know? Well, good point. Um, yeah, the smuggler is this one person play called a thriller in rhyme. Well, yes and no. I mean, you can imagine how I felt when the first couplet um, rhymed. There are quotation marks around that word, uh, land and man. You know, so here's um, Ronan Noon um, writing in verse, um, and he has Michael Malamphy putting out there what he wrote. However, this is a, a story uh, that involves immigration and um, other topics uh, like that. It takes place in a bar, and um, Lanfey is quite the bartender. I mean, uh, very much like Tom Cruise in Cocktail, he can um, throw those bottles around and catch them <laughs> and uh, have no problem with them whatsoever. Um, but in telling the story, why in rhyme? First off, the guy establishes that he wants to be a novelist. And secondly, um, he mentions even wanting to write a screenplay. So why is why is he talking in rhyme or, or near rhymes? I mean, much of it uh, are words that don't rhyme at all, technically. But but why do this? I mean, you know, it's not as if the guy wanted to be an epic poet. I mean, it's been a long time since things like Evangeline and the courtship of Miles Standish were things that people read. So why bother? I mean, it just it makes no sense to me um, why this would happen. Um, so I mean, when I heard <laughs> um, Land and Man. I thought of uh, Zoe Caldwell in Master Class when um, the first person gets up there and sings a note and she says, stop right there. <laughs> I mean, poor soul, one note and stop right there. You know, so um, so but Malafi is a very appealing storyteller. I will say that. And um, it does get very moving at times when he talks about his problems with his wife and his child. Um, I will say that um, he does skirt the law. Uh, the character does, and he rationalizes the crime he's doing. So um, I can't say I'm terribly um, happy about that. Um, he says the F word a lot. And given the fact that he seems to be Irish, um, we are at Irish rep. I'm surprised that we don't have the feck euphemism used. I mm. was wondering about that. I just don't know. Um uh, but the whole point is that he is an American and he wants to be an American. So maybe he's making a conscious effort not to say feck. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so, but I had to say feck at the rhymes and I will certainly not say feck <laughs> to Mr. Malamphy, um, who I really thought was a very, very appealing, a very winning performer. And at least that, by the way, you know, Irish rep, terrific organization. And I mean, this is in the second stage down below, way down below. Uh, and yet, it really is a first-rate set for something for a second stage for a company that certainly, I am sure, does not have money to burn. Um, Charlotte Moore has done wonderful work there. Ironically enough, um, yesterday when I went, upstairs was Endgame, uh, the Samuel Beckett play. So I wanna, I've been meaning to talk to Charlotte for months, if not years, saying, look, there's this Tony-winning play called Boston Boy. Why aren't you doing it? So anyway, uh, every time I go, I say, Charlotte here. No, she's in St. Louis. No, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's here today. Um, she's in the balcony. She's ushering. Isn't this something mm. when an artistic ushering, director yeah. is willing to usher? In the balcony yet. You know, I mean, so. Uh, but I went up there and I said, hey, I'm Boston Boy. And she said, we did it our first or second year. I forget which. She said, <laughs> you know, when nobody knew where we were. So I said, well, maybe it's time to do it again. So I hope I put um, a Brendan B in, in her bonnet and that <laughs> um, we will certainly uh, see Boston Boy. Because, you know, it won the Tony as best play. So how bad can it be? So, um, but anyway, as terms of the smuggler. Um, he, he sit at the tables. He serves. There are two tables, and he serves people drinks. I don't know what's in them. I wasn't sitting at the table, but try to get there early so you can get a free drink. Peter, I've never been to their second space, and I didn't even know where it was. I thought it was above somewhere. But um, what is it? A basically a black box? Yeah, it's it's in the basement. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So, uh, The Smuggler, A Thriller in Rhyme, uh, playing at second stage through February 26th, February 26th. <laughs> uh, 
All right. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. So, uh, Peter, you went from one one-person show to another one-person show where you saw aptly titled Solo at the Soho Playhouse. Well, granted, it's aptly titled, and I certainly won't argue with that. Um, but my, uh, what a generic title for a, for a show. Uh, and I would think that um, Gabriel Mollica could come up with something um, a little more interesting for his title. Uh, he makes a point of saying that um, he, he comes on to uh, women by... <laughs> by mentioning that the angel Gabriel came down to the Virgin Mary and told her she was pregnant. And uh, this is a line that hasn't worked uh, terribly well for him, and I'm not surprised by. Very genial performer. Um, <clears throat> they often say that um, Italian-Americans, as well as Italians, of course, talk with their hands. My, is this guy have loquacious hands? Um, they're all over the place. This is not a, a criticism, not remotely. Um, <clears throat> he's very, very entertaining, very funny. People laughed quite a bit. And um, telling his adventures going through college, he's now 29 years old, um, going through college, heartbreak with women, best friends betraying him, all that type of thing. And um, really, it's, it's, it's quite a genial show. What amused me, he talked about being in high school when he was in musicals. And of course, he had a lot of friends who had no idea what, what he was doing. And uh, one time they came to see a show and they said, where were the songs? And he said, well, you don't put songs in the diary of Anne Frank. Afterwards, he's the type of performer who stands outside and wants to shake your hand. And um, I did point out to him that the Diary of Anne Frank indeed was a musical called Yours, Anne, mm -hmm. which, um, which, by the way, should have never been a musical. So, I mean, he's well within his rights to assume mm -hmm. that it should Because, you know, the problem with that is when people singing, it gives you the feeling that they're content. You know, and, and these people aren't content, you know. So uh, anyway, but um, Gabe Malika is uh, quite good. And um, um, maybe he took a, a, a page out of Patti Lapone's well, the cover of Patty Lapone's memoir, because remember, there was all this talk about what is Patty Lapone going to call a memoir? I'm taking suggestions. And what did it turn out to be? Patty Lapone. So maybe he felt a solo show should simply be called Solo. Uh, a little generic for my taste, but at least what's on stage is very entertaining. Okay. Uh, so, and filling out the trio for the day. Uh, you got over to Art New York in the 50s on the west side to see a show called Memorial. This is not a one-person play, although the one person who's the lead in the play, uh, an actress named Angel Lynn, is terrific in it. Um, terrific uh, quite a bit. Um, uh, and ironically enough, she has the same last name as the character she's playing, Maya Lynn. Now, you may um, immediately recognize the name because uh, she was um, studying at Yale and she decided to enter a contest for designing the uh, Vietnam Veterans Memorial down in Washington. And this 21-year-old won the contest, uh, or at least she thinks she did. No, technically she did win the contest. No question about that. But winning comes with a price. Now she has to deal with bureaucracy. All right. She does have um, one uh, person on her side, very staunchly, Wolf von Eckhart, um, who was one of the judges. Um, but, but Colonel James Becker mm, has his doubts. He, and one of the problems of the play um, uh, is that he waffles back and forth. And... I'm not sure if what the playwright uh, is trying to do is uh, her name is Livia Ye, by the way, Y-E-H. Um, I'm not sure if the playwright is trying to say to us that um, people in this position just can't make a decision because they're afraid of making the wrong decision. That occurred to me, and maybe that's what she's getting at. But there are times when he seems enthusiastic about this project and times when he doesn't. Is he being swayed by um, other people? The veterans themselves uh, have an issue with the way she designed it. They actually want a, a statue of uh, soldiers, um, three soldiers who are, are in agony. And she doesn't want that. She wants something more subtle. What she wants simply is to have the names of everybody who perished in this war chronologically um, detailed. And that that's what she wants. And um, so uh, what's going to happen? Well, obviously, we know the memorial is going to be built because there it is. I've been there. I imagine many of you have too. Um, but will it be compromised? That's the question. And um, I dare say if you've been to the memorial, 
even having been there, you might not remember um, the uh, the outcome that happens in the play. So uh, it, it's it's not a great play. It's not a bad play. It's a, a traditional two and a half stars out of four play. And um, but it is worth seeing for this Angel Lynn, who is very very endearing. Granted, the character has that youthful rebelliousness. Um, the fact that um, it's got to be done her way, my way, or the highway uh, type of attitude which may be a little off-putting, but it does make sense for somebody young. So um, it, it, it's not an inaccurate assumption to make about um, her. But um, by the way, there's a an, uh, quite almost a full-page uh, disclaimer about the fact that not all of this is historically accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, keep that in mind as well. So you're not going to see a documentary. You're going to see a play. Uh, not a bad one, but a great performance by Angel Lynn. All right. So we will have uh, links to all those things in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com if you want to check them out further. Michael, you spent a little bit of time on West 44th Street, which is uh, one of my favorite blocks in New York City, mm-hmm. and uh, got over to Sardi's where there was a book party for Julian Schlossberg. So tell us about it. Yes, on Tuesday uh, and at Sardi's, one of my favorite places, uh, there was a party for the release of Julian Schlossberg's memoir, which is called Try Not to Hold It Against Me, hmm. A Producer's <laughs> Life. <laughs> and the blurb for it says, a one-of-a-kind autobiography by one of entertainment's true insiders, written with engaging humor and self-deprecation. The book gives readers a behind-the-scenes pass to Khan and Las Vegas, the lives and homes of the stars, and rarely seen but crucial work of the producer in the midst of it all. Schlossberg takes us through the trials and triumphs of work and plays in his roles on Broadway, off-Broadway, film and TV producer, a radio and TV host, and documentarian. Uh, His Broadway credits uh, as a producer or associate producer are... Uh, chronologically, It Had to Be You in 1981, uh, the 1994 production of Damn Yankees, The Beauty Queen of Lenan in 1998, Taller Than a Dwarf in 2000, Fortune's Fool in 2002, The Sly Fox uh, with uh, in, in 2004, After the Night and the Music 2005, Relatively Speaking, in 2011, that was that evening of three one-act plays. Uh, and then his final Broadway credit uh, to date is Bullets Over Broadway in 2014, which he didn't discuss this, uh, and I haven't gotten to read the book yet, uh, so I'm not sure if it's in there, but one could understand why that experience uh, might put off a producer uh, you know, from returning. So I don't know if he feels that way about it, but... Um, We'll have to see. I mean, there was just so, so, so much awful stuff going on around that with Mia Farrow and Woody Allen. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm sure you all remember mm. all that. Uh, so anyway, uh, but he, uh, he seems like a very engaging guy and he had, um, a wonderful group assembled, uh, to read chapters from the book. Uh, Tony Roberts, Marlo Thomas. Uh, who was one of the stars of Relatively Speaking. Um, Layla Robbins, Lila Robbins, I'm sorry, I always do that. And I even asked her (laughs) (laughs) at this, I said, which one is it? And she said, Lila, Lila Robbins and F. Murray Abraham. Uh, So it it was really interesting, especially the the chapter on Relatively Speaking, uh, how those three one acts uh, came to be put together. because initially it was going to be something completely different. Uh, but let's see here. The, uh, the 3-1-X were Talking Cure by Ethan Cohen. And then uh, something that wound up being called George is Dead by Elaine May, which originally uh, w- was the the impetus for the whole project. And then the third one was uh, Honeymoon Hotel. Uh, that's the one by Woody Allen. Uh, so I guess Mr. Schlossberg had that connection with Woody Allen and also Bullets Over Broadway. Uh, so it was really, uh, it was really fun. Uh, it seems like based on the excerpts that were read, that it's a very engaging and, and interesting, a uh, fun read. And I always enjoy going to Sardis. Uh, so that made it another, another plus in my view. So I was glad to attend that. 
All right. So uh, try not to hold it against me. A producer's Life uh, is available uh, in many different places, all the typical places plus the extra places. Uh, I'll have a link to that in the show notes so that you can get to it pretty quickly. Uh, in the news this week, we've had uh, quite a, a, quite a <laughs> number of of Broadway-related things in the news, uh, from the amazing to the absurd. So let's start with the amazing. Uh, we had news about Pearly Victorious. So, Michael, tell us about it. Well, I uh, everyone I know is just quite surprised that they're going to be doing the play and not the musical. Um, and especially because the star of this revival of the play is going to be Leslie Odom Jr., <laughs> uh, who is obviously very well known as a musical performer as well as an actor. So it will be interesting to see. I... Uh, um, I just looked and the musical is complete on YouTube um, with a lot of the original cast members. Uh, I think it was done for, um, I'm not sure what exactly. It In was, fact, I was there when it was done. It was, oh, done that's at, right. It was yeah. Lehman College. Um, and I remember um, hearing on the way to the, uh, the taping that indeed um, um, that some famous entertainer who's now a kind of think of now um was it harry nelson um harry chapin yeah died mm, um, um it, it was really something to be there to see that um i'm sorry michael i i went off on a tangent and i apologize no no it, that's um, okay I, I just don't remember if it was for hbo or an early version of hbo or what i don't remember what who it was recorded for but anyway it's it's there complete on youtube if you wish to watch that it's got melba moore uh the original female lead and it's got robert guillaume in for uh cleavon little in the title role and also uh, our friend brandon maggart is in it and well, also, also Shula, um, <laughs> um sherman um uh, helmsley um who got sherman. is that his name yeah sherman helmsley and also yeah. and don scardino Yes, indeed. Uh, the funny thing is that he got uh, Sherman got such entrance applause, which he never got during the run of the show, I guarantee you. Um, <laughs> but in between those, he did the Jeffersons. So he was a well-known name by that point. So uh, right. so it was really something. He was the one who was really considered the biggest star of them all that day. But um, it will be interesting to see how um, modern audiences and critics respond to this. I remember, I, I remember clearly, although I don't remember who wrote it, when the musical came out, one of the reviews said, I hope today's blacks hate Pearly. Because um, I think, um, well, first of all, the, the, the stereotypes in it, but also mm -hmm. the that title character he's a, a preacher uh but he's also quite you might almost describe him as a con artist and you know i mean they're trying they're going after uh, the, the primary person they're going after is um this the incredibly bigoted old white guy uh so it's okay in that way but i, I don't know just the way the way that pearly victorious uh, that's his name uh goes about what he's trying to get it's it's in a very sort of con artisty way um so i i it will be will be interesting to see if um how, how people react to it and i i imagine maybe the reason that they're doing the play rather than the musical is the play would be more purely ossie davis mm -hmm. uh, he wrote it uh and he i think he's credited with the book of the musical as well but uh, one of the but, three writers yeah right mm -hmm. but but the musical has a score by uh by two guys who were white <laughs> um mm -hmm. so maybe that maybe they think that the people would like to see the original version and and from a historical standpoint i'm looking forward to it also but i was surprised that they're doing the play and not the musical 
I'm stunned they're doing it at all uh, for the reasons you say. Um, mm-hmm. There's a great deal of Uncle Tomism in this play, and mm-hmm. I can really understand why that credit, critic, whoever he may be, uh, made that statement about, I hope Blacks hate this uh, play. Um, I think it's going to be done in a very stylized way to let us know, um, hey, this is uh, something that was happening way back when, and um, don't think it's representative of now what we're saying that. Uh, there must be some sort of feeling about that. There just must be. But um, I also have to say that um, Curly Victorious, that's his name, as Michael said, um, <laughs> has really um, uh, haunted me as a reviewer. Hmm. What do I mean? Okay. So Pearly opens. This is the musical now in 1970. I think it opened on the Ides of March, but that didn't seem to hurt it. Anyway, hmm. so um, so what does Clive Barnes say in his review in the Times? Pearly is victorious. And what did, I think it was John Chapman, maybe Doug Watt in the news say, Pearly is victorious. <laughs> and uh, what the post critic, Pearly is victorious. And I'm telling you, you know, every time I think of a clever line or what I think is clever, not everybody does, God <laughs> knows. I think, oh my God, is there, is some, are the critics all going to say the same thing? Boy, boy, I hope I didn't come up with something that everybody else is saying. So, but, um, and believe me, <laughs> the ads in the Sunday Times the following week use Pearly is victorious from all three of these guys so uh it's an easy uh assumption to make and uh we have to watch that as uh, those of us who review thanks for reminding me about uh mentioning the the uncle tomism i, I think that's primarily the sherman helmsley character you bet whose name is get low yeah as in like you know yeah get low get, get low <laughs> and right. he even has a song in the musical called uh skin in a cat which is basically right. about Uncle Tomism. Uh, now, right. I mean, he's only Indeed. one character in it. So I think that sure. Davis was trying to show that there are or were such people, but not everyone else, not everyone in the play acts that way. Uh, but in uh, fact, in fact, I don't know. Do you know this? When the movie was made, yes, um, Pearly Victorious was the title, but somewhere along the way, it got changed. The title got changed to Gone Are the Days. Mm, yeah. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, with a resonance to Gone with the Wind. Well, among uh, I other think, things. Among, yeah, but the, the idea that, we're, look, we're talking about the past. You know, we're not talking about right now. Don't worry about it. Oh, you know? yeah. So I, think yes. that's, I think that was the reason for it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so um, anyway, maybe they should call it Gone of the Days. <laughs> But yeah, from a historical standpoint, um, uh, uh, it, it's one of the things I'm looking forward to most this year. Mm-hmm. So we, we've had a, a handful of uh, announcements and actually shows that have come back that we, we've thought about as being, wow, problematic. And they've been, you know, sort of rethought and re-engineered. Another one of them is the New York, New York. We've talked about the adaptation of the film. And that we didn't much think that it would be a very good adaptation, but they've come to tell us that uh, it's going to be an adaptation of the film, but only taking certain parts of it. Uh, I hope but so. We've, but we've gotten a trailer now, and Michael, I was about the watch, I was watching Jeopardy and the and the commercial. Uh, well, I guess you would call it. Uh, since where I saw it started and it looked really great in a excellent production values. And then it kept going on and on. And it was a full minute long. Uh, They must've spent thousands and thousands of dollars on it. It's shot in different locations uh, and the costuming and the, 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 just every aspect of the production values was incredibly impressive so I, you know, I mean, I guess given the people behind it, they have really high hopes for it. Um, honestly, I was discussing with a friend and the the, the only negative uh, I found in the commercial was that the song that was primarily featured, um, there's a snippet of the, of course, the title song towards the end. But before that, the song that's primarily featured, I'm t- I understand is a completely new song from what I'm told. Uh, with new music by John Kander and lyrics by Lin Manuel Miranda, um, I'm not sure if I had heard that there were going. There might be some other songs 
with previously written music by Kander uh, that uh, Lin-Manuel would be writing music, uh, writing lyrics to. But I'm not sure if that's true. And at any rate, I'm told that this song in particular is not one of them. And I don't remember the title or the hook of it, but it didn't, I just didn't like it that much. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, maybe I'd need to hear it a few more times and maybe I need to see it in context. Um, but I, I mean, I think it's phenomenal that John Kander is working you with bet. Miranda. I think that that really does my heart you really, bet. really, really mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always fantasize about other things like that. I, I you know, like. <laughs> Eldon Harnick teaming up with, uh, sure. with one of the young uh, right. composers. Um, but this one is actually happening. So I, I'm sure all eyes are on this production. I saw the load-in the other day, uh, by mm. the way, at the St. James, um, which is kind of fun to see happening when, especially if a show does then turn out to be a hit and runs for years, you can say, well, you know, I saw the load-in. <laughs> <laughs> which you know it's how many people see that it's you know it's nothing exciting but how who many can say that about it? phantom <laughs> right exactly exactly uh the other uh it brings to mind frank rich's um memoir and he talks about that uh, december 28th 1963 night when so many uh, six shows were closing that night and he went around town watching the loadouts um <laughs> so uh yes in they come he's in People come, people go, as they say in Grand Hotel, and so do sets. <laughs> so uh, did you notice in the press release that they sent out, uh, I guess uh, New York, New York started its rehearsals this week, which is why they're doing a big PR push right now. But they asked that any time that we mention the show, we mention Candor and Ab. Uh, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry if I left him out, because I'm mm-hmm. sure there'll be a lot yeah. of him in there. Sure. Yes, exactly. As well they should be. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that Robert De Niro character is far less obnoxious than he was in the movie. I I, I find him insufferable. Well, so. I, uh, yeah, I guess that's, I I believe that's the part that Colgen Ryan is playing. I think he has the same name. But from everything I hear, the story and the plot is going to be very, very different. I'm looking forward to watching that movie the night before I go. Uh, yeah, it, I love doing that. It's one of my favorite things in the world. And uh, so I, it, this will be the second time that I've seen this movie because I certainly haven't seen it more than once, even though it's lived in my house for a long time. I remember two things about it, as as you have mentioned before, Peter, just the fact that that character is so incredibly annoying and unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And then also just the movie overall is quite dark, Um yeah, so, you know, yeah, uh, aside yeah. for, you know that central relationship between sure. De Niro and Minnelli. But then the other thing I remember, do you remember this? Um, it was Martin Scorsese, of course, and he sometimes gets a little experimental. And there was a scene that was repeated in the movie. Oh, yeah? Do you, do you remember no, that? No, not at all. Yeah, they're having an argument. I think they're sitting in a car or something, and it's going on and on, this argument. And then suddenly part of the scene is literally repeated. <laughs> um, I almost thought when I saw it, that it had, that it could have been a mistake, Sure, sure. but that doesn't happen. In a, you know, I mean, if, if, if a mistake like that happens, then you get a whole reel yeah. that's, that's rerun. And that's wow. not what it was. It was just like about a minute or two. So um, I, I should, I think I have that movie in my home somewhere. I, I should also rewatch it. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, other things in the news this week is that, uh, um, and Juliet performer, let me grab his, uh, their name again, Justin David Sullivan, he declined, or uh, they declined a mm-hmm. Tony Award eligibility um, based upon the Tony Awards have... Uh, I've still stuck with uh, gendered categories in the uh, in the various categories, uh, whereas some of the other awards, um, the awards uh, that are upcoming uh, this season, have gone to uh, neutral categories. So, Peter and Michael, what do you think about this, Michael? Well, um, I, I have thought a lot about it. Uh, 
And what I came up with is very similar to what our friend Josh Ellis came up with. Uh, I mean, they could make a change and they'd obviously, first of all, have to change the titles of the awards from best performance to outstanding performance. Um, I think it might be fine. This is what I wrote down because it's a little complicated. Maybe the best solution would be to have four total categories for outstanding performance in lead and featured roles in plays and musicals with 10 nominees permitted in each category. And the awards going to, my idea is, the awards going to the three people in each category who get the most votes. That would work out to 12 awards total, which would be four more than the current eight total for the acting categories. The slightly increased total number of awards could be justified by the increased number of nominees, and also better to increase the total number of awards slightly than to decrease it. Now, Josh had suggested that there be two um, winners in each category, and but somehow that just doesn't sound right to me. I, I don't know why. Um, three sounds good and two doesn't sound right to me uh but also whether you you if this change were made and whether there were two or three winners in each category um there's still going to be the issue of you know then there might be a huge issue if there's a a time uh when for example everyone in a category is a cis male or a cis female Hmm. uh so but but I still think that maybe it's the best solution overall. And so I wonder what you all think of that. Well, um, I, I think two is logical um, because that's what the, essentially they've been giving out um, all the, all the way. Um, it's fine with me if they uh, change it to that. Uh, already the Lucille hotels have uh, that happened last year. And I remember years ago, many moons ago, I wrote a column saying what would have happened. Uh, I mean, I wasn't even thinking of trans situation here. I was just saying what would happen if it was simply um, genderless, um, that just best performance, um, what would happen? And I remember th- one of the things I said is I, I really believe that um, that would have been quite a race in 1965 when Zero Mostel was certainly a shoe-in for Fiddler <laughs> on the Roof. But also, that was the year that Sammy Davis was doing Golden Boy, and Tommy Steele was phenomenal in Half a Sixpence. So I have a feeling that Liza Minnelli would not have received a Tony Award that year for Flora the Red Menace, um, that she would have to wait um, for 12 more, 13 more years, whatever it was, to get her Tony, because I don't think that... Um, Either of those two gentlemen would have been denied. So uh, let's see what happens. Let's try it. Um, yeah, why not? Uh, it, it seems to um, be something that is um, very much on the horizon. It's something that's not more than on the horizon. It's here. So so let's do it. Why not? Well, what's wrong with making a change like that? Um, I I don't think that uh, the tradition is is so important in this case i like mm-hmm. tradition a lot in many cases but i don't think in this case it doesn't strike me as uh, such an important thing and i kind so, of think that people if they you know if they could still say they won a tony award i think they would be happy with that sure sure and you know what they uh, that they could do this would be really radical but again it's all based on what we're used to right indeed but th- what they mm-hmm. could do also is eliminate the lead and performing distinction uh, uh the lead and uh, supporting or uh, feature oh. distinction mm-hmm. um they could have say uh say let's just say um 15 or 20 nominees for best performance in a musical and best performance in a play uh, unless they want to eliminate that distinction as well um and then the the awards could go to the say the four or five people uh, who get the most votes in each category. And I know that sounds like what, but 
again, what's <laughs> what's real? If it were done that way from the beginning, we would say, "Oh, yeah, that." It's, that's that's very true. I agree with that entirely. However, all I could hear think of is fifteen names being read and the pianist and the orchestra playing them out because <laughs> it's going on too long. <laughs> that's uh, a good point. Um, yeah. But yes, you, you're very right about the fact that it's it's all about what we're used to, and um, and so uh, any change sometimes uh, can make people very nervous and um obviously it's going to happen here too but i do think it's inevitable it would also solve a not only the the gender issue but um uh, like i said that the, the, there have been cases where there have been controversy as to whether someone was lead or featured oh yeah uh so then that would no longer be a controversy mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean, uh, this um, this performer in uh, and Juliet uh, may very well turn out to be um, the William Daniels of his era because William Daniels objected to being in the supporting featured mm-hmm. category for 1776 and said, "Take my name out of contention. I don't want it." And um, <clears throat> and what we're dealing with here, uh, so William Daniels didn't get a Tony that he clearly would have received had he stayed in that category, no question. Um, so maybe this gentleman, uh, sorry, this performer uh, would um, be indeed the sacrificial lamb who says, I'm not taking it and makes the change and people from now on can get um, awards in in the category that they want to get awards in. Maybe. Uh, so much of uh, the argument that, that I've seen online in social media, Facebook and Twitter and various uh, other types of uh, conversations around this uh, uh, sent the pushback against it centers around, uh, uh, as you've brought up, tradition and mm. how uncomfortable it makes people feel. And this is uh, an advertisement for Broadway. And and I, I think to myself, um, the way that uh, the Broadway community has led in so many different areas throughout. Mm. Uh, throughout mm-hmm, time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, bringing AIDS mainstream and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, non-traditional uh, you know, casting, non-traditional casting, and sure. uh, so many underrepresented groups and rights and mm-hmm, things like that. Mm-hmm. It it doesn't feel comfortable, but it's the right thing to do. Uh, it it may not feel comfortable for some, but some. you know, this is this is. Yeah. You know, something that Broadway has done all throughout the ages is is led on this thing. And this is, regardless of who's fighting it, uh, this is eventually what Justin David Smith, uh, excuse me, Justin David Sullivan has done is going to end up being what happens at the end of the day. So we might as well, uh, we might as well do it now and be right. again the leader Right in right. this area, you know, I, I don't know if this is going to happen on the Academy Awards anytime soon. Um, but uh, well, one uh, person, but I think did, it will happen. One person yeah. did say to me, um, "If indeed they um, feel this way, why are there two masculine names? Uh, why isn't there at least one feminine name?" Well, that gets mm-hmm. into a whole nother. It sure does. Yeah, yeah, I'm only but, telling but you what it's I've an heard. interesting point. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sure. All right, and uh, uh, something else that came up in the news, and it's ridiculous <laughs> that we're talking about it, but we, <laughs> it, as uh, Logan Caldwell Block brought up in uh, Playbill, uh, George Santos's latest wild claim from the Long Island Congressman has brought him into Playbill territory, as George Santos claims he produced the Broadway Spider-Man uh, musical. But of course he didn't. So I mean, <laughs> I, I think what happened here is that one of his relatives said to him, "Spider-Man was an enormous hit, and therefore you should claim that you produced it because hmm. um, because maybe the relative uh, lies just as much as George said. <laughs> so that could very well be the case. And because why would you pick Broadway's biggest flop? What a metaphor for who this guy is. I mean, it's just amazing, just amazing." Just, 
I, I have no words. I, I can't. It, I know. <laughs> uh, when, I, when I saw this, I think Howard Sherman posted it on Facebook or something. I think that's the first time I saw it. I, I thought it was an Onion article. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't believe that it was Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg, uh, uh, a business news um, um, media outlet at, at a very, very serious, and you wouldn't expect any jokes come from Bloomberg. But um, George Santos claimed that he produced Spider-Man. So, wow! Don't I you mean, don't you don't you love what Rick Miramontes? Yes, the I was just. Said? <laughs> Here's a quotation. Of all the tribulations the producers of Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark had to endure, we are very pleased, proud, and relieved to report working with George Santos was not one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Great line. Good for you, Rick. Rick's terrific. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So... Okay, what we can leave that there. We don't, uh, but I, I wonder That's if right. this this will uh, prompt us to a revival of Catch Me If You Can. Uh huh. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Michael, let's. Uh, <clears throat> uh, you had sent me an email about uh, John Victor Schmidt. So tell us about John. Yes, I had discussed John uh, before. This was the fellow uh, who I met some years ago who was in the original companies of Brigadoon and Paint Your Wagon and Polonaise and uh, I think Out of This World. And he um, had been living in Columbus, Ohio for years. And uh, I met him through another friend. And he, uh, long story short, he wound up coming back to New York to visit New York for the first time since 1955 uh, mm-hmm. when um, this visit was prompted by the city center, uh, that wonderful city center production of Brigadoon with Kelly O'Hara and Patrick Wilson and Stephanie J. Block, et cetera. Uh, so, and I was privileged to have John as my guest for that. And he sat next to me, and uh, it was incredible for me and for him, I'm sure, to, to sit there, uh, you know, when he had been in the show in 1947. Mm. Uh, and then we went, we had let the production know that that he was coming, and we went back afterwards, and everyone in the cast and the, the company, including the director, Christopher Wielden, just greeted John with open arms and were gathered around him and hearing him tell stories. And, and there was a photo op and I, I didn't know that, um, uh, that footage and uh, photos existed from that moment, but uh, my friend Chuck Pennington uh, put together a, uh, uh, a wonderful obit video for John and, and all of that is in there. So you can see that moment in the link that we're including in the, uh, in the show notes. Um, it was really kind of an amazing, amazing night. And he, John wound up dying on December 24th, 2022, uh, two weeks shy of his 101st birthday. Mm. Um, so rest in peace uh, to him, but I'm really glad I got to meet him and share that experience with him. I'll obviously never forget it. So we do have the link in the show notes to the video uh, and get over and check it out. It's very interesting. Uh, Some incredible uh, footage and also photos in the, in the Obit video. There's one (laughs) amazing photo of uh, John at a rehearsal for, uh, well, I'm not sure which show it was. It could have been Brigadoon or it could have been Paint Your Wagon. But anyway, he's standing right behind Agnes DeMille. As she's mm. as she's talking to everyone, <laughs> mm. you know. Mm. Can you imagine? Uh, just mm. just theater history right there. Hmm. All right. And uh, last week we uh, Michael talked about the film of the whale, mm. uh, and I had asked if anybody out there knew of someone who uh, reviewed both the play and the. Uh, film. And one of our listeners, Arthur Smith, emailed us and let us know that uh, a writer on Vox.com, Alyssa Wilkinson, had done just that and sent us uh, a link to it and talked about the differences between 
uh, the film and the uh, original off-Broadway play, um, and uh, that the film was updated um, from uh, the earlier point in time to now the 2016 presidential primary in Idaho, uh, and uh, gave us good comparisons there, and and also the reason for the the mention of Christianity. I think Michael, you had brought that up about mm. the question about the Christianity. So, if you're interested in that, go to the show notes. There's a link to the Vox article and uh, Alyssa Wilkinson's comparison uh, there as well. Thank you, Arthur, for sending that along. Yeah, I'm going to definitely want to read that because, as I said. Um I mean, obviously, some of the ch- it was obvious that there had been some changes because of the uh, what you mentioned about the politics and all that. Mm-hmm. But uh, but the pl- the movie is, I think, it's fair to say, very stage bound, uh, and by its nature, I mean it's about a guy who can't leave his he can't move basically, uh, he can't leave his home. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I I'm guessing that a lot of it was very similar to the play, but maybe not. So I I do look forward to reading this article. Hmm. Uh, And lastly for this morning is that uh, Billy Porter has made an appearance on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR podcast and NPR show. Uh, I listened to it already this morning, and there's not a lot of talk about uh, Billy's appearance on stage, but... uh, but if you're a fan of Billy, take a listen to it. It's very funny, and he talks about his uh, new movie that's just coming out and a lot about his uh, his life and his fashion that he's been uh, displaying these days. Very, very funny about um, when he wears outfits to uh, various functions – They've got a plan about how to escape the outfit, especially large hats that might not, you know, work for a three-hour thing. He said that one of his hats was so painful it, it it left a mark on his head. And so it's Billy Porter, and you just can't get any better than Billy. So it's on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me at npr.org slash wait, wait. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. I saw a trailer for that movie, AD for Brady. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I guess when I went to see the whale, and uh, it seems like he has a quite a major role in it. Mm-hmm. So um, here's Billy taking on the whole world there, and that's <laughs> that's just wonderful, just just wonderful. So before we wrap up and get on to uh, trivia and our musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time you have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. as many ways to get us. Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, and of course, Patreon, which I never mention enough. If you go to patreon.com slash broadwayradio, you can sign up and get our stuff early, which also includes this week, um, Jan Simpson's new episode of All the Drama, where she talks about the 1953 Pulitzer Prize winner, Picnic. Uh, So you can get it a week early on Patreon, and it'll be out next week for the general public. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? In the 50s, someone who would become a lyricist and a director of a 1970s musical co-wrote a short-running off-Broadway review that had a one-word title. In the 70s, one of our multi-produced composer and lyricist teams wrote a short-running Broadway musical that also had a one-word title. Put these two titles together, and you'll have the name of an item that many people in the 60s considered purchasing, and quite a few did. Okay. The 1959 show that included work by Martin Charnin, the lyricist director of Annie, was called Fallout. The 1973 musical by Gretchen Cryer and Nancy Ford was called Shelter. And indeed, in the 60s, when the Cold War was at its coldest Mm. and many people feared that the Soviet Union would release an atomic bomb or worse, many an American thought seriously about installing a Fallout Shelter. Sean Logan was the first to get it, followed by Juliet Green, Tony Janicki, and Brigadoon. Not too many people got that. 
All right. So let's make it a little easier this week. What do these plays have in common? God of Carnage. The milk train doesn't stop here anymore. A soldier's play. Sexual perversity in Chicago and the time of the cuckoo. Okay. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, this is something a bit out of the ordinary. I've mentioned many times that I've been collecting old vinyl records uh, for some time now. And I was recently at, I think it was Academy Records on 18th Street, when I came across a, a vinyl copy of Angela Lansbury's Gypsy recording. And I, uh, it's not a great recording, uh, but I thought it would be nice to have it on vinyl, uh, for, if only for her. Uh, I mean, she's terrific in it. There are other aspects of the recording that are not that great. Um, so I picked it up, and, it, and initially I thought it was just um, a vinyl copy of the the, the one that I had had, I, I think, originally on vinyl and then later on CD, uh, because the cover was the same. But then I opened it up, and I took out the actual record, and I, know, I could tell from the label that this was a British pressing. Oh, so that meant uh, I, I assume that meant that this was going to have different takes of Indeed certain numbers. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. because famously uh, the, the 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 recording was originally was made in London, and uh, Lansbury was unhappy with some of her takes. So at some point later on, I'm not sure exactly when they they went back into the studio and she re-recorded. Um, I think it was three numbers. Some people, everything's coming up roses and roses turn. Uh, so sure enough, I um, compared those tracks. And at first I wasn't sure if I'd even be able to tell how obvious it would be. But uh, but then it turned out that it was quite obvious because in uh, some people uh, on this original L London recording, uh, first of all, uh, Miss Lansbury gets a little bit behind the orchestra at one point, and she immediately uh, compensates and, and gets right back on track. But it you could call it a, a, a mistake. Um, and so, uh, but then also on that this London recording of some people, she sings that high note at the end of the number, uh, but not Rose. She goes up rather than but not Rose, which is what she chose to do for some reason when she re-recorded it. Uh, so that's how I could tell that that was a different take. And then also, um, this one was, it was harder to tell, but in everything's coming up roses, um, I could tell that that was a different take because there's a minor flub in the lyrics at the very end. So I'm going to, uh, we're going to, we ha have, uh, some people as our opener, uh, today, uh, an excerpt of it, including that final section with the high note at the end uh and for everything's coming up roses we're, we're going to give you most of the number uh i'm not going to say what that minor lyric flub is at the end but uh you see if you can spot it and feel free to write in if you if you can tell what it is uh um i but i expect that those were the reasons why Miss Lansbury said, you know, can I please redo those numbers? Uh, I guess they didn't have time for retakes when she originally recorded them. And, you know, I, I think that she was a perfectionist in the, in the best way. Uh, and that she just really wanted to try to fix those minor errors, uh, in both of those tracks. So I'm glad I found this, uh, LP because I probably wouldn't have had access um, to hear those original recordings. Otherwise, I, I looked on YouTube and the, I could not find them. Uh, so I guess maybe I could have asked a friend if they had <laughs> if they had the British pressing, but that would seem rather unlikely anyway. So I'm just really glad that I that I found that and and I hope you enjoyed these tracks. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia. This is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. But they you'll be swell. You'll be great. Gotta have the whole world on a break. Starting here.
Things gonna 